another episode of EC30. The conversation continues about racism and the gospel. Today's special guest, Pastor Keith Stanley. Keith, how are you? Doing great, Dave. It's great to be with you. It is great to have you here. For those who may be your first time either watching this on YouTube or the podcast, we want to encourage you, subscribe, make sure and rate the podcast, share it with your friends. We are talking about racism in light of the gospel. This started Months ago on Zoom, weekly meetings with a group of diverse believers in Birmingham, Alabama, who wanted to hear from black brothers and sisters talk about racism, historical present day oppression, injustice, inequality in our hearts. We're broken, sin confessed, asking the Lord to help us walk this road better together. Those meetings, instead of being weekly now, have moved to once a month. As a result, this podcast YouTube series of EC30 we have been inviting pastors, leaders to come on and speak to us, not about our feelings, not about our thoughts, but as kingdom citizens of heaven, followers of Jesus Christ, how we can look at God's word and deal directly with racism in light of the gospel. And that's why we're so thankful for Keith today. Let me give you a little information about Keith. He currently serves as a city minister pastor at the church at Brook Hills. He's been on staff for 14 years and in his current role for eight years. Married to Robin for 43 years, two children, three grandchildren. His daughter lives in Bogota, Colombia, where she and her husband, who is Afro-Colombian, do orphan care for Lifeline Children's Services. He's been serving ministry for over 40 years in various roles, student ministry, adult ministry, executive pastor, discipleship, now serves in the role of city ministries pastor. Man, but seven years ago, how exciting, he founded a nonprofit called Work Faith Birmingham to empower adults with employment barriers with the faith and skills they need to enjoy God's good design for their lives and work, despite the fact that the vast majority of their 1,000 clients have criminal records, they have been about 80% successful in helping them obtain and retain employment. What a blessing. Keith, before you go and dive into God's word and, and encourage and challenge us, on both racism and how to move forward in the gospel and deeper relationship with Christ. Let me pray for us. And then I'm going to turn it over to you. Okay. God, thank you for this day. It has passed through your hand. You are sovereign. You are faithful. You are good. Your plan for us is good. You are going to carry out your purpose and your plan in the church and in your, uh, in your kingdom, Lord, we ask that you would take your word as you promised that it would not return void. Lord, shower it over us so that we would confess sin by the power of your Holy Spirit from the dark, shadowed places of our hearts, yes. that they would be brought to light, or that we would confess sin or attitudes or biases that we have so that we can make much of Jesus Christ. And you are the only hope that we have in this world. You are the promise we have for the future, but you are also our inheritance and our promise today. Use Keith, use our time together to make much of your son, bring glory to yourself for the sake of your beautiful name and your glory. Amen. Keith, I'm going to turn it over to you. Thanks, Dave. It's great to be with you. And thanks for reminding me how old I am and uh, how faithful God has been through the years in spite of my weaknesses. And uh, Amen. 
I appreciate the invitation to be with you today. I, I'm, I'm just so thankful for the work that you and Cheryl or whoever else have done to start up, get comfortable being uncomfortable, and then this EC30 uh, opportunity. Uh, personally, I really enjoyed listening to uh, all of our African-American members and friends as they shared their thoughts and their stories and their perspectives and even their pain with us. Uh, it's been really helpful to listen and lean in on that conversation. I think it's really important for all of us in the majority culture, in the church particularly, uh, to take a position of loving and listening and learning and lamenting during these days of turmoil. Uh, and that weekly Zoom call that you guys put together has just been extremely helpful. So thank you, my brother, mm. for putting that together. What a blessing. Uh, I would really encourage all of my brothers and sisters, especially my white brothers and sisters, uh, that we all need to take the posture that our brother, uh, that the half-brother of, Je of Jesus, James, encouraged the early church to take when he addressed the issue of partiality. Right before he called out the sin of partiality, he encouraged the church in James 1.19. He said, everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. I don't know about you, but I think if we would just memorize and meditate on that one verse every day before we post anything on social media, before we speak, especially during these politically charged days, the church and our country would be better in a much better place. Of course, we all know that listening and learning is best done in the context of personal relationships, right? Uh, but I'm thankful that you, David, and, and others have created this forum for all of us to begin that journey. and. I'm especially appreciative of all the pastors that have already spoken and other spiritual leaders that have spoken on this new EC30 podcast. Uh, I have really learned things and been challenged by each one of them. And so I, I'm thankful to join that conversation today. So I'm going to be leaning into one question today. And that question is this, what does racial reconciliation have to do with the gospel? And I want to primarily talk to my white brothers and sisters uh, but I trust that God's word will, as always, speak to all believers of all ethnicities, as it always done in all time in history. As a way of clarity, before I start, I want my brothers and sisters of color to know that all the staff at my church, the Church of Brook Hills, would say that racism in all of its variations is a sin, mm. has no place in the church, no place in the body of Jesus, and no place in our society. If you're listening in from another church, I refer you to Pastor Matt's statement on race, racism, and the gospel. It's just a really solid statement with a lot of good, solid scriptures backing it up. And even as I talk tonight, I, I want you to know I'm going to use the word race, speaking about racial reconciliation, knowing that there's really just one race, right? The human race. And we're all made together in the image of God from single parents, Adam and Eve, according to Genesis 1. 26 and 27. In fact, let me start by just reminding us what it says. It says, God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And he goes on to say, let them rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, over the cattle and over the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. The New Testament goes on and affirms the same truth in Acts 17, 26. It says, God has made from one blood all nations or all ethnicity, all ethnicities to dwell on the face of the earth. 
to have any other opinion than that is unbiblical and unchristian in its worldview. What is the scripture saying? It's saying genetically beneath the skin, we're basically the same. And spiritually, we are all the same. We're all created in the image of God, male and female, so that all people of all time, of all ethnicities, are worthy of equal respect, dignity, and value. And we're all made in the image of God. Amen. But here's the thing. Scripture also teaches that God is working to reconcile his one blood, the human race, through his one bloodline of his son, Jesus the Christ, back to himself and to one another as he works to reconcile all things in Christ, things on earth and things in the heavens, according to Colossians 1. And here's the cool thing. We know he will succeed. We have this beautiful picture of what that's going to look like in Revelation chapter 7 of people from every nation and every tribe and every people in every language standing together in all to worshiping before the throne of God. But in the meantime, in the meantime, we have much work to do in this area of racial reconciliation. I also want to say as I start to, today that, that I, I use this word race knowing that it is really a social and a political construct that first began to be used around 1560. It was used to denote a tribe, a nation, or people of common ancestry. It soon evolved into a tool that was used to devalue a group of people solely based on observable biological characteristics, such as the color of one's skin or other human characteristics that were given to us by our creator. You know, coincidentally, the kidnapping and slave trade of Africans began about 100 years earlier in the mid-1400s as Portuguese began bringing slaves into Europe. Then the papal edicts of 1493, they're called the Doctrines of Discovery, gave the Spanish explorers the blessings of the Catholic Church, the right to kill, steal, imprison, enslave, rape, and conquer those whose lands were being explored. Obviously, these acts of greed and exploitation were in direct contrast to Scripture, and they were directed primarily at people of color. Even though another pope in 1515, through a papal edict, denounced slave trading as unsanctioned by the church, it continued and it eventually spilled over into the Atlantic, first into Brazil in 1526, and eventually reaching the U.S. in 1619. So this construct of race eventually led to the intentional devaluing of Africans as less than fully human, even by the church and even in our constitution in order to support the atrocities of chattel slavery in the United States. I think you all know that. And of course, time will not allow me to trace the history of slavery and exploitation, oppression, discrimination based on greed throughout our history in the U.S. toward people of color. But I would encourage my white brothers and sisters to take a position of listening and learning and do some homework to understand those offenses that our, our brothers and sisters of color still feel deep in their soul from centuries of discrimination and exploitation. But what does any of that have to do with the gospel? Well, I'm glad you asked. I want to propose to you Three things. I want to propose to you that racial reconciliation is at the heart of the gospel and at the heart of what God is doing in the world today through Jesus. Not only is it at the heart of the gospel, number two, I want to propose that only the church is really equipped to accomplish racial reconciliation. 
And number three, I want to propose that we must lead in racial reconciliation for the sake of the mission of Christ. Amen. The spread of the gospel. And we must give ourselves wholeheartedly to this task with all diligence as soon as possible. I agree with Dr. John Perkins in his last book, One Blood, Parting Words to the Church on Race and Love. He said this. He said, the problem of reconciliation is much too big to be wrestled to the ground by plans that begin in the minds of men. He said, this is a God-sized problem. It's one that only the church, through the power of the Holy Spirit, can heal. It requires the quality of love that only our Savior can provide. What I hope today is that we can see that the gospel story is a story of reconciliation. That God is reconciling the world to himself and to one another through Jesus the Christ. And according to 2 Corinthians 5, Colossians 1, Ephesians 2, that God desires to display the power of the gospel through the very act of racial reconciliation in the church. So let's go on a journey. I want to begin by reminding us all that in the garden, at the beginning of time, there was no racism. There was no prejudice. There were no biases. There were no oppressions. No, there was no greed, no blaming, no poverty, no anger, no offenses, no misunderstandings, no bribe, no shame, certainly no segregation, only peace. Adam and Eve, the father and mother of all ethnicities, lived in perfect peace and harmony with each other, with God, with creation. And they enjoyed God's good design and purposes for their lives. Adam and Eve experienced what the Old Testament word shalom is. They experienced God's shalom, God's perfect peace, the flourishing of life under his gracious design and authority. So where did all the ethnicities come from that reflect the beauty of God's handiwork? I have this friend that believes that when Adam was created, he was created, he was made of the earth, so he was probably darker. And Eve was made of his ribs, so she was probably lighter. So all their children became blends of their skin hue. I'm not sure of all the scientific data to support that, but I do know that all ethnicities came from the same parents. So I guess that's a reasonable hypothesis. Unfortunately, we all know that life did not stay like God designed it in the garden. Adam and Eve rebelled against God's gracious authority, wanting to be God's themselves. They rebelled and allowed sin to infect their hearts. And the immediate result was oppression, shame, pride, lust, and blame seized them immediately. Genesis 3 tells us that the man and woman not only began to blame each other and God for their sin, but verse 16 tells us they immediately began to struggle for control and power over one another. And this infection of sin spilled over into their bloodline as one of their children killed his own brother. And the story of the human uh, race has been that ever since then, right? It's been one of war and control and pride and greed, exploitation, slavery, lust, prejudice, and sin ever since. The truth is we have always sought to elevate ourselves and our tribes over others. We've always sought to devalue and even exploit others for our benefit. This has been, unfortunately, the story of the human experience, not just the American experience. Thankfully, in Genesis 3.15, God announced a predetermined plan 
to rescue us from ourselves and to reconcile us back to himself and to his original design. He said in Genesis 3.15 that one would come from the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the enemy. Our enemy would bruise his heel, but he would crush his head, foreshadowing one day the promised one, the Messiah, Jesus, would come. In Genesis 12, God put this plan of redemption in motion as he announced to a man named Abram that through him, all the nations of the world would be blessed, not just the Jewish race, but all ethnicities would be blessed through this coming promised Messiah. Jesus, the Son of God, the suffering servant, would reconcile the world back to God and to his original design. When the years that follow, God would send laws through Abraham's bloodline to instruct us how to live just and righteous lives. He would send prophets to announce pending judgments on God's people if they did not turn to live that just and righteous way they had required of them. But what happened? Still oppression, hatred, exploitation, greed, prejudice, slavery, anger, lust, selfishness gripped the human heart. So God did what human law could not do. He came to rescue us from ourselves. right? You know the story. He sent his son, Jesus, the son of the living God, to teach us and show us how to live a life of love, justice, and righteousness. He lived a life that we could not live, and he thus became the perfect sacrifice for our sins. The perfect just one laid down his life for the unjust as just payment for the penalty of our sins so that we could be declared righteous and just before God and be forever reconciled to him if we're willing to turn from our sinful rebellion, trust in his redeeming work for us on the cross, and confess him and no longer us as Lord of our lives. Think about this. God disadvantaged himself for us so that we could be advantaged by his merciful and gracious work to be reconciled back to him and his plan. James, the half-brother of Jesus in James 2, described it like this. He said, Jesus humbled himself. He emptied himself. Listen to this. He gave up all his rights and privileges to become obedient to death on the cross for our sins. My friends, that's what real love looks like. Disadvantaging yourself for others in need while expecting nothing in return. Mm. But let's not forget this. Before Jesus went to that bloody and cruel Roman cross, He wanted his disciples to know why the world would believe their story, his plan of salvation for all the nations. He was going to send them out to the nations right before he was going to go back into heaven. He was going to give them the power of the Holy Spirit. He was going to give them the testimony of his resurrection. He was going to give them the testimony of their changed lives and the help of the church. But why would the world believe their message? Would it be because of their great choirs? Would it be because of their great buildings, their great orators, their great institutional leaders, their great programs? No, the world already had those things. What was going to be so new, different, even unworldly about this new community that Jesus was creating that was going to be the way they were going to, what was going to be, it was going to be the way that they were going to love one another. The way they would care for, sacrifice, support, and disadvantage themselves on behalf of each other and on behalf of the vulnerable of the world. That's what was going to be different about this community. 
On the night before his crucifixion, Jesus said these words in John 13, 34. He said, a new commandment I give you. I mean, he'd been teaching for three years, right? And he said, a new commandment I'm going to give you right now. Don't forget this. This is my new command for you. Love one another as I have loved you. And then he went on to say, by this, all men will know you're my disciples. If you have that kind of love for one another. Did you catch that? Jesus said the defining mark of his followers was going to be how they loved one another. The way people of all ethnicities and all nations that called themselves by his name loved one another. The way people of all socio and economic standings that called themselves by his name loved one another. That's the way that people were going to know that they were his disciples and that this gospel was true. Then just a few hours later, Jesus stopped to pray for his disciples for us in John 17. Listen to what was on his mind as he heads to be arrested and give his life on the cross as a ransom for the sins of the world. In verse 11, he prays to the Father for his current disciples. He prays that they may be one even as we are one. That's, that's pretty unified, right, as the Father and Son are one. In verse 20 and 21, he prays not just for his current disciples, but he prays for all of us who will one day believe in him through their word, that they may be one, us, that we may be one. Why? So that the world may believe that you sent me. And then in verse 23, he prays again for this unity in all believers of all times so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. Think about this. Jesus directly ties the identity of the church, the mission of the church, and the effectiveness of the mission of the church to the church directly doing one thing, the way they love one another in unity together. My brothers and sisters, the early church got that message. They were a beautiful display of new community like the world had never seen before. They were this multi-ethnic new community who generously and sacrificially disadvantaged themselves for one another. Think about this. In Acts 2, when the church was born on the day of Pentecost, we see that it was initiated with 3,000 Jews believing in Jesus. And according to Acts 2.5, these Jews were from every nation under heaven. Acts 2.9 through 12 gives us a list showing that they were not only from different countries, but different continents and different ethnicities. And in the book of Acts, we see that this multi-ethnic community began to sacrifice and care for one another in unnatural, loving ways. In fact, Acts 4.32 tells us that no one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but instead they held everything in common. There was so much sharing and generosity taking place. In verse 34, it says that there was not even a needy person among them. This multi-ethnic Jewish community, which is now a Christian community, was just caring for one another sacrificially, loving one another. Friends, the world has never seen a love like that. They had never seen a love like that. And as a result, thousands started believing, just like Jesus said they would, as they heard the testimony of the gospel and they saw his love on unit, in unity on display through them. But then Acts 6 happens. In Acts 6, we see this ethnic tension developed 
there was a crisis in the church along ethnic lines. The Greek-speaking widows were complaining they weren't getting the same daily care and resources that the Hebrew-speaking Jews were. They were complaining about an injustice. So the apostles got together and, and they solved the problem by following the example of Jesus. They humbled themselves. They gave up control over the money and the food distribution. And they put primarily Greek-speaking men who were full of integrity and full of the spirit in charge of the food distribution. Wow. That act of love and justice, that act of sacrifice and power and control so impacted the priests in the temple who were in charge of, of doing similar duties that the scripture tells us in verse seven that the disciples in Jerusalem grew in number and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Mm. My brothers and sisters, can you see how the advancement of the gospel is directly tied to the unity, the sacrificial love, and the reconciliation of all ethnicities in the church? The early church wasn't perfect, so I don't want to paint that picture. I mean, they struggled to embrace others of different races outside the Jewish race, particularly the Samaritans and the Gentiles. But in Acts 8 and Acts 10 and 11, we see the church pressing through those prejudices to embrace everyone in this community as equal members of one body in Christ. Acts 10, 14, we, we hear Peter saying, now I truly understand that God doesn't show favoritism, but in every nation, the person who fears him is acceptable to him. And in verse 43, he says, through Jesus, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. And by the way, that's good news for us, right? Because we're not born Jews by birth. Mm -hmm. The gospel includes us. And Paul had to constantly remind them of that, right? He had to constantly remind them that Jesus had torn down that wall of hostility between them. Uh, he had made them into one body where no one was inferior. There were no second-class citizens, whether by race or economic standing or gender. And as a rule, they sought to display that truth. They got it. And it had great impact on the world around him. So back to the book of Acts. In Acts 11, um, after great persecution had occurred in Jerusalem, we read how some unnamed brothers went down to Antioch and they began to share the gospel. And they didn't just share the gospel with Jews, they shared the gospel with Gentiles too. In verse 21, it tells us that the Lord's hand was with them and a large number believed and turned to the Lord. And the church at Jerusalem heard what was happening and they sent down Barnabas to put together a, a leadership team for these new disciples. And so what did Barnabas do? He went to Tarsus and he found this guy named Saul, who is now Paul. And he brought him and others to teach and disciple these new converts. Acts 13.1 gives us a picture of who some of these leaders were. And at least one of them was black, possibly two. But what we see is a picture of a multi-ethnic leadership team at the church at Antioch. And back in Acts 11.26, we read that the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Before that, they were often called people of the way. So the question has to come to our mind. We have to ask, what was so unique about Antioch and the church at Antioch that, that caused them to first be called Christians? And what does it have to do with the importance of pursuing racial reconciliation in the church? So first, let me remind you that Antioch, not Jerusalem, became the mission launch pad 
for the future expansion of the gospel to the nation. In fact, all of Paul's missionary journeys began from this sending church. But let me give you a little history about Antioch. Antioch was the fourth largest city in the Roman Empire. It was founded in 300 BC as a fortress with large walls, and it was intentionally segregated when it was built by design. The, it was segregated where the Syrian people lived in one section and the rest of the Greek population lived in another section. Over time, other ethnicities moved in, and by the time of the uh, Book of Acts, there were 18 distinct population areas living in Antioch, including a large segment of Jews. The density of population in this city was incredible. The city itself was only one mile long and two miles wide, but the density of population was greater than what we see in New York City. People literally lived on top of each other in very small places, every building being four or five stories high. It was, it was highly transient, a lot of people coming in and out for commerce. It was dangerous to be out at night. It was unsanitary. No doubt you had to look out for yourself and your tribe in order to survive there. Then along comes these people from Jerusalem with a message of hope and forgiveness of sins and with incredible sacrificial love for one another, including them, including everyone, all ethnicities in this community. The people living there had no category for what they saw in such an ethnically divided city. It wasn't Jewish, it wasn't Syrian, it wasn't Greek, certainly wasn't Roman. The only thing they could relate to what they were seeing was that it reminded them of this teachings of this guy named Jesus. It reminded them of his love and the life that he lived and the way that he called for people to love one another. And so they started calling them little Christ. And many of them believe, just like Jesus said they would, because they saw the power of the gospel displayed through the love and kindness in the church. Brothers and sisters, over the next 100 years, the whole world heard the gospel. They began to hear and receive and believe the gospel because they saw it active in the way the church loved one another. The gospel spread like wildfire fire around the planet. So, that causes me to ask us, is the reason we're losing the war for the soul of America? Because our country has not been seeing the church love one another the same way today. Mm. Is the reason each upcoming generation in America is becoming more and more unchurched and lost? Because they don't see the love of Jesus on display in the church, in acts of justice, love, generosity, and sacrifice. Has our segregation, our prejudices, our biases, our selfishness, our greed, our lack of repentance, our lack of forgiveness affected the advancement of the gospel in the U.S. and around the world? Can the outside world look at us today and say, I believe because of the way they love one another across socioeconomic and ethnic lines, because of the way they gladly and generously sacrifice for one another, 
I think if we're honest, my brothers and sisters, we have to, we have to be honest and say we've lost our way. Here are the realities for me. For true racial reconciliation to occur in our country, it's going to take a lot of humility, a lot of love, a lot of listening, patience, kindness, gentleness, understanding, a lot of empathy, a lot of confession, forgiveness, a lot of mercy, a lot of generosity, a lot of works of justice and mercy and compassion, and so much more. And that's not natural for the world. But that's the fastball for the church, right? That's the very character of Jesus. And that should be the very character of the church. That's why I say only the church is qualified to lead out in racial reconciliation in America. And brothers and sisters, for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of people believing in Jesus and receiving eternal reconciliation to the Father, the forgiveness of their sins, we must lead out in racial reconciliation. We must lead out in the church. We must lead out in our country, and we must lead out in the world. How else will people believe in the love of Jesus for them? So I want to give us today a couple of practical ideas. First, to my white brothers and sisters, according to Matthew 5, 23 and 24, I believe the greater burden is on us. We have to take the initiative toward reconciliation. So let's get busy. Let's listen. Let's learn. Let's lament. And let's do that through the context of personal relationships. Let's get off social media and let's take time to make a friend over coffee or over a meal. Let's ask some questions. Let's listen to some stories. Let's gain some perspectives. And then let's do some research. Let's do our homework. Let's ask the question, what have I I not known about the experience of my brothers and sisters of color in America and their journey? Let's find out. And let's lament with them. Let's listen to the scripture who tells us to weep with those who weep. Weep with our brothers and sisters who weep. And then let's be willing to confess and repent of any personal biases of race or racism in our own hearts. And let's ask Jesus to change our heart, to be like his heart. And then let's ask, let's ask our, our brothers and sisters of color how we can, how we can serve them and, and how we can come along those that have been marginalized through past practices of discrimination. And let's seek to diversify our church leadership and our staffs. And let's seek to support churches of color. Let's see how we can serve and and help them reach their communities with the gospel. And to all of us, I would say, let's work together to practice Micah 6-8, the great requirement. Let's seek to build out a more just society where everyone is respected equally as created in the image of God. And let's all, as brothers and sisters in Christ, ask, how can we more and more every day? How can we, with the help of the Spirit of Christ, reflect his character in the way we talk, in the way we love, the way we listen, the way we confess our sins to one another, the way we forgive, the way we support, the way we sacrifice, the way we disadvantage ourselves for one another reflect Jesus' love? so that the world can see and will believe in Jesus. 
I'd close with this scripture, 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 18. You know it. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself, praise God, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. May God grant the grace to us to succeed in the ministry of reconciliation that he's given to each of us. Keith, thank you. Um, how, ooh, how deep is God's love for us, right? That, yeah. uh, that he would make a way to reconcile us and then call us to be reconciled one to another. Yeah. Hmm. What a call for the church. Would you, uh, would you close us in prayer? Yeah, it'd be my privilege. God, we, we confess that we're not worthy of mercy. We're not worthy of grace. We are sinners who need your love. And we thank you that you disadvantaged yourself for us. You humbled yourself. You took on the form of the servant. And you sacrificed everything for us. We thank you and praise you that through your act of love, you reconciled us back to the Father. And then you gave us this incredible joy of being part of inviting others to be reconciled to you. And Lord, we know that we can't do the ministry of reconciliation on our own. If we could, Jesus would not have had to die. That this act of grace in our society and in the church can only be accomplished by your spirit. So we ask you to empower us, change our hearts, change our perspectives. Give us grace to be like you, reflecting your image, giving, forbearing one another in love and giving grace to our brothers and sisters and help us to love in a way that's sacrificial, the way that the early church did so that the world will believe in you. They'll see that love and believe in you. There's a lot of water under the bridge in America. We know that. There's a lot of anger and a lot of pain that only you can heal. But would you heal that pain in the church? Would you make us one so that your love can be on display to the world, so that the world will knock the doors down, desiring to experience that love on display? Would you, Lord, make us one like you designed from the beginning and like we will be one day? Would you make the reality of the future of Revelation 7 real in the U.S. now? Would you show us our part in that for the glory of Jesus? Amen. Amen. Thank you. Thank you.